question for you. There are rumblings, aren't there, that cinemas are going to be opening again soon. I know. So my question to you is, what do you miss about the cinema? The cinema I like to go to has got a very comfortable chair <laughs> and the big screen. Ever seen, like we, we spoke about Moulin Rouge, preferring that to seeing that on the big screen. And I think the films we watched this week also I would have liked to see on the big screen as well. So that is probably the piece I miss the most. And those really comfy chairs that recline and your feet go up. Depends which cinema you go to, isn't it? Of course. <laughs> yeah, I think I might go to the same cinema as you. Yeah. <laughs> those seats those seats just make it, don't they? Yeah, with a massive it, cup holder, arm rest with the cup holders. Yeah, love that. Okay. And so you're stuffing did... everything inside as well. Sorry, I just moved my microphone. <laughs> as you knocked the microphone over. <laughs> yeah. So do you... Okay, here's another question then. Do you ever go to the cinema on your own? I have done on my birthday because my birthday falls just after Christmas and everybody goes back to work and I want to take my birthday off. So I have been, what did I see? I saw, oh, the one I didn't really like, which got loads of Oscars, the favourite, and I just cringed all the way through it and I didn't want to be there. Um, So I saw that on my own. I've seen um, some of the divergent trilogy i've seen one of those in um in a cinema as well and i was the only one in this huge cinema any creak i heard i was just like oh, what's that <laughs> kept on looking around see if there's somebody managing the, the filming piece as well but no i couldn't see i just saw a light obviously that was quite spooky but what about you i love going to the cinema on my own i have to say because because i thought i find it the most relaxing experience if you're lucky enough to be able to visit the cinema, one on your own and two during the day, and you walk into the auditorium and you may spot maybe one or two or three, or the holy grail is, of course, when you walk in and there's nobody there and you sit down in that favourite seat of yours because you've got all the choice mm. in the world. And it's just the most, yeah, it's, the be- it's just the best thing ever. Question for you then. Where do you like to sit in the cinema? D5. It's, it's no, I, I know that I think I know which cinema you're going to, so it's nearer the front. And if some cinemas, it'll be um, where the walkway is or behind the barrier, perfect, exactly in but, the middle. At the yeah, it's exactly about five or six rows back, but yeah, you've got the walkway in yeah. front of you, so you get that bit more legroom and you feel a bit more isolated from you know, yeah, the boards behind you who go higher, but yeah. um, yeah, that's my favorite. No, yeah, um, sort of D to F, really, are the, is, is, the, is the zone. That's is it. Zone. That's and it, also mate. in the summer cinemas where they have VIP, I think they're too far back. I've never noticed even where the VIP seating is. You can see the difference in chairs, but quite often they're a little bit further back. And I'm like, I don't want to sit in the, the seats further back. I feel you're, you're more amongst it if you go in the seats further back. So I would have thought VIP means you're somewhere that feels a bit more secluded mm. but the cinema we're talking about with the lovely comfy seats i mean they're comfy enough right i was trying to work out w- what you get for vip what is it like a double seat for couples or something do you ring a bell and a butler <laughs> comes along and gives you a glass of wine or something yes my lord <laughs> oh no no that would be nice a glass of wine whilst there are some cinemas that my parents go to so um and i know some of their friends so maybe the next generation 
they go to a cinema at their theatre and they get served wine and beer. Yeah. Which I, I mean, thought, so that's the next level, isn't that's it? That's the but, next level. But but you're going to get some silly people that will just go over the top and they will start being noisy. I think. I like. Yeah. I like the idea of being in a. You're paying the VIP money for a particular row of seats. Yeah. And in these row of seats, you can just press a button and order, and then a contraption opens, and it just rises from underneath. So, like beer, wine, noise-free snackage. That would be superb. I'd be up for that. That would be great. Yeah. I, I'm. <laughs> what about outdoor cinemas? Basically, I need to do more outdoor cinemaing. I've done no, I've not done an outdoor cinema. I've watched football games outdoors, but I've not watched a film outdoors. But there are because we're going through this COVID crisis at the moment, and there's less people going being able to go to the cinema. I think there some people are now doing more of them drive-throughs. The only thing is, I think they need to consider the films a bit better. They tend to go for a safer option with a film. Yeah, I'm like with you Reese there. Or, I'm with or, you there. You know, yeah, I'd rather have something. Maybe could the show Blade Runner or you know oh, something like that. Oh my That'd god, be, I would be there. Real... In a, I'd be there in a flash to watch yeah. Blade Runner on the big yeah. screen out. So, but yeah, you're right. You tend to get Top Gun and Grease and I don't know the crowd pleasers, but they're not. I just don't think. Yeah, they're not enough to really kind of make me that interested. Yeah. Um, but actually, I tell a lie. I have I have been to outdoor cinema. I watched Blade Runner at Glastonbury Festival before. Are you a big fan of Blade Runner? Um, not a huge fan. I'm. It, yeah, I quite like the last one. Um, the first one I need to watch rewatch. Okay. Right. So where we're going to see what we get this week, eh? <laughs> I know. You know well, we've 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 had our sci-fi choice, haven't we, for this round in yeah, in, in a right in arrival. So. Um, yeah. So what are, okay, so the two films this week were Arrival and Platoon. That's right. Which one so, should we go for first? Let's do Arrival. Okay. So Arrival was off my list. Um, yeah. I saw it at the cinema. And it's strange. It's one of those ones where I'm not sure I wholly got it the first time round. And that's one of the reasons I put it on my list. And when I watched it the second time this week, there were, I mean, this is like a recurring theme. I don't know if it's just because I have a really bad memory. There were some quite big parts of that that I actually genuinely forgot about. But yeah, second time round, it had a completely different impact on me. So Mm. this came out in 2016 directed by Denis Villeneuve, coming off the back of the success of Sicario, another great film. This was written by Eric Heiserer, and it was based on a story called The Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang. And it stars Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, and Forrest Whitaker. Nominated for seven Oscars, uh, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Screenplay, one just one for for sound editing. So this is quite a complex film, but I think it does really well to take quite a lot of difficult and quite in-depth themes into a pretty accessible mainstream film. So through a series of memories through the eyes of linguistics professor, Louise Banks, who's played by Amy Adams, we see this really quite tragic passing of her daughter, Hannah. And when she next attends class, she 
finds that her students are distracted on their phones and basically everything is interrupted by this news flash, these reports of 12 monolithic spaceships, which look like these huge kind of seamless black pebble-like spheres that are hovering over 12 different locations across the world. We learn quite quickly that Louise has worked with the military before when she's paid a visit by Colonel Weber, played by Forrest Whitaker, who asked her to lead a scientific team alongside theoretical physicist Ian Donnelly, played by Jeremy Renner. So the job is for Louise to communicate with the beings on these ships. The best way to describe them is like these two seven-limbed squid-like creatures that almost live in the this kind of misty tank almost, and they're called heptapods. So they need to try and figure out what they're saying when they're communicating and also why they're there. Um, and these heptapods communicate by emitting this ink-like vapor that forms into these circular symbols, which effectively is their language. So as the film progresses, we have these split missions after it's deciphered that these beings appear to be communicating about a weapon. So you have the military who suspects a possible attack, and then you have Louise who recognises that their intentions may not be aggressive, and so she's after a far more diplomatic, uh, long-term approach uh, to give her time to really decode the language and understand their, their motives. And so what we get is this really intimate and personal connection that she makes with these uh, heptapods, which eventually brings about this big life-changing revelation, um, which concerns her past and present. So it's really about the decisions she makes upon acquiring this skill to communicate and the knowledge that they impart with her. So for me, this is on the list because it's not a conventional sci-fi in either its narrative or its characterization, but more so it's, you know, in the message or questions it's, it's trying to kind of discuss, mm. if you like. It's an intimate story that just happens to be set in this sci-fi universe. And that's, that's why I liked it. It's almost like, yes, obviously this is a very big spectacle film in some ways, but the actual story itself is really quite um, personal. It deals with these whole themes of, suffering and time and imagination and human relationships and this whole theme of language and how people communicate on different levels or frequencies if you like and how we basically deal with all of that and how we use language in a way that really maps out our path in life so it's yeah fast i've just found it really fascinating and emotional and quite philosophical and just very very different and i want to say more but obviously there is a twist in this or a revelation that, that totally blows your mind and, and makes the film what it is. So I'm going to stop there and I'm going to hand over to you, Sarah. Okay, so I it's interesting that you said that you didn't get it the first time, really. Um, I would say I didn't fully get it the first time I watched it and I watched it on big screen the first time and this was the, 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 the second time that I've actually watched it on a, on a smaller screen. And I did get it this time and probably because I had somebody talk me through it last time, but I couldn't actually remember much of the film at all. But the thing is, is that what would you do if you knew your life start from start to finish? And that is really the premise of the whole film. And you don't really get to find that out what their, what the next steps would be. But if you had that vision, would you try and play it out as you envisaged it? Or would you try and change things? 
And I'm not, I don't think I'm giving too much away by saying that either, to be honest. Amy Adams plays Louise Banks, a professor in languages, and Jeremy Rayner, and as Ian Donnelly, as a physicist. And I think their connection and relationship was on, on screen was, was really good. And it's, it was kind of nice and not any erratic kind of personalities. They're all very calm. And I think they've worked together before in another film as well. It's quite political. Um, the 12 alien pods or heptapods uh, landed on Earth in China, Russia, Devon. Why they chose Devon in the UK, I do not know, <laughs> but they landed there. It's a nice place to have a holiday, isn't it? I mean, if you're like an alien's coming down to uh, coming down to the UK, well, I mean, yeah. you've got to go straight for Devon. It's beautiful went, down there. Went to the beach in, you know, popped to the beach in, in Devon, went surfing, the aliens did, and I'll leave it there. So, but it was interesting because you could see... The, Chi- the Chinese and, and Russians were getting tense and it was all heightening and they were threatening the aliens with war. And it just really highlighted who the superpower is. Almost the director is highlighting that China is the superpower, whereas Trump probably would say, I'm the superpower in, in the US. It was China over, US, uh, over Russia and then over US, I would say, in this film. And really the other countries were kind of following what China were doing in some respects uh, and it takes us through the motions when louise banks making progress with talking to the aliens and they needed to convince the chinese to stop and you know that's what they had to do in order for the rest of the world to kind of stop so it was interesting to see those superpower political plays that came into play in, in this film as well i mentioned the two actors very calming there's kind of calm nature throughout the whole film i suggest not watching it if you're tired because it's very dark and you may fall asleep i'm going to be honest I'm, i think i may have dropped off maybe that's why i didn't get it at the cinema because I watched it quite late and it's all dark and very calm. And, but I'm not saying it's boring in any way at all. It's, it's got an air of suspense and it's got almost like controlled panic, I, I, I would call it. Through the film, you see Amy Adams' character is quite lonely. She has a beautiful house by the lake. You can see her pottering around there and you have flashback of her memories with her daughter, Hannah, as you mentioned, um, from baby to teenage age and being a single mum and Hannah being unwell as well. And she really, when you see her today, she, she kind of lives to work, really, because she has that kind of lonely path. And these aliens that come into her life, basically, almost gives her something to focus, you know, a real big focus. Um, because when Forrest Whitaker, Colonel Weber, arrives to meet her, she's at work when everybody else has had a lockdown. They've all gone home, nobody in the university where she works. And you can see she really lives to work at this point. And as you mentioned, she's she's worked for the government before. Uh, Whitaker makes her listen to some sounds on um, on his mobile phone. And she says, I, I need to go meet them to understand, you know, a bit more about their movements, their writing to help her translate. It's not just about listening. And um, you kind of forget that sometimes, that you can't just translate something just by listening. And we saw these circular symbols to communicate to Amy Adams' character through, through that. I felt it was quite clever, turning gravity sideways to enable people to walk in this vertical heptapod. The twist we had at the end, obviously, as well. The author, Ted Chang, um, who wrote the book, he said it was very close adaptation to his book, so that was good. The director, Villeneuve, and screenwriter created an alien language, apparently, and both of them 
working with their teams, managed to create a logogram Bible, which included over 100 different completely operative logograms. And apparently 71 of those were actually used during the movie. So, you know, who does that? Who creates a completely different language out of symbols as well? And I just felt that was quite clever how they went about that. Also, the heptapod craft was well thought through as well. The director was actually looking into what shape should it be? Should it be egg-shaped, which a lot of movies have these crafts as egg-shaped? But he was looking into Eunomia, this asteroid called Eunomonia, which was apparently egg-shaped on one side and then sort of pebble like on the other so they've got a lot of thought have gone into pretty much all the imagery and that you see on screen the aliens i thought were in some respects stereotypical because they're quite squid like and i love the names that they gave them abbott and costello costello uh, i thought that was a nice little touch that they they named the actual aliens the two aliens that, that were in the film i would say this is one of the better sci-fi movies i've seen today and um it was beautiful as well with the landscape shots they had of the heptapod in the fields and the lake view from her house as well. And there was an element of peace surrounding it as well. That's why I said, don't watch it when you're going to be tired because I think you would just drop off because it is quite, it's got a calming effect to it as well. Then as I go back, it's really looking at Louise's life and what I said before, what if you knew, you know, if you knew your life from start to finish and hoping in this film, she changed some of her paths to do something differently. I just hope she doesn't continue to be in that lonely shell that she portrays in the, in the movie. I think it's brilliant directed and written. Amy Adams, uh, well acted, and, and Jeremy Renner acted it brilliantly as well. So I don't know whether you've got any further thoughts before I give it um, a rating, Rob. Yeah, I agree with all of those sentiments, really. It's interesting that you use the term control panic because one of the things that I really liked about this and helped immerse me in it was the music score by yeah. Johan Johansson. Yeah. And I was trying to think of a way to describe it because it's this otherworldly score with like whale-like sounds and these pulsing beats and tapping and strange voice loops. And, and it has this real dreamlike hypnotic quality to it which at times is very soothing. And in the same way that you talk about it being very calming in general, this film, at times the, the score accentuates the fact that it's really calm. And then at times that score is cranked up and the same things that made everything feel really calm suddenly make everything feel incredibly foreboding and menacing. And I think it almost keeps you on edge in the same way that the military and the government, how long do we play this nicey-nicey game for the sake of science when at any moment we could be at war? But there could be a completely different reason why they're here. I thought that really worked so well in the way the score worked. And so the control panic, I think, is a perfect description in some ways of what the score was doing as well. Mm. And then that same score was intermixed with this theme, I think it was called On the Nature of Daylight by Max Richter, which is the, the very tranquil theme that's used whenever we're seeing Louise's life and her daughter. A has beautiful it. scene. It's almost, beautiful. Like a, it's almost like a snapshot of somebody taking a photo. Yes, precisely. It's a really beautiful like, album coming to life. And I thought what was fascinating about it, in the same way that it bodes this question of if you knew your future, would you change anything? Along with that is the dilemma that should you make a change, 
Mm. You could actually be robbing events that somebody else might have had you stuck yeah. to your future, if that makes sense. So it's like Back like, to the Future films, isn't it? Yeah, it's got this, <laughs> this kind of this ripple effect of just because you think you want to change something, well, that's all very well, but what does that mean maybe to the other, yeah. to the other people involved in your life? Is that actually not fair on them? But yeah, yeah I'm like you. To, to say that we both didn't get it the first time, I think it's more about getting it but not really properly connecting with it. Yeah. This time yeah. I connected with what they were trying to say, and I think that's the difference. And it's interesting. I, I think I might have drifted off a little bit the first time. Now you said that. Mm. So mm. I, I think... think it's because it was I was in a dark environment. The film was dark. I think maybe it, it it's easier to watch from home. I mean, it's great to see it on a big screen. But I, I think if you, you've got your own lighting, you know what will keep you awake and you can sort of stop and start if you want. I think that might be the better way to watch it. As I said, though, it's not boring at all. Oh, it's, no way. And, and I certainly engaged with it a lot more. I, I was watching it on my own and I definitely engaged with it more uh, this time. What I really liked about the whole palette of the cinematography, and this is quite deliberate in keeping mm. it harnessed in very much a real world setting and not maybe the more glorified sci-fi traditional setting was the feel they wanted was they called dirty sci-fi which just makes everything look really kind of couldn't go as far as say gritty but it's a tiny bit noisy and apparently Villeneuve referred to this as he wanted it to look like a bad Tuesday morning (laughs) <laughs> on the way to work when you look out and everything's a bit dreary and I thought that is perfect that's exactly it which I think you're right sometimes it can almost feel quite oppressive and dark but no that was its biggest draw for me is the fact it was really interesting and different and as you say well acted well directed mm. I like the way the evaporation took place when one of the spacecrafts was leaving I thought that was quite clever it sort of evaporated off gave it really really that eerie kind of feeling didn't it but then beautiful sunshine on occasions in the background obviously in Willacombe and Devon it did <laughs> <laughs> right come on then scores on the doors <laughs> The scores, I thought it was a very clever film. I'm going to give it 8 out of 10. I'm going to give it 8 out of 10 as well. I was tempted to go a little bit Ooh. higher, but it, okay. was, it was more the theme and the message of the film that really gripped me. Yeah, I don't think that allows me to give it more than 8, but obviously 8 is still a very good score, isn't it? Great. Okay, 8's all round. Shall we move on to the next one? Platoon. Platoon, right. This is what's off your list. It is off my list. So what's the connection, firstly, Rob, uh, with Bettina and Arrival? Forrest Whitaker. It is, yeah. A very young Forrest Whitaker we see in this film. And, and also we see many other young characters that were up and coming in 1986 when this film was made and released. So you get to see Charlie Sheen in action, who's 21 at the time, who plays the lead role as Chris Taylor. You've got Johnny Depp didn't realise was slightly older, 23 years old he played in this film. He was learner. We've got Willem Dafoe, who's Sergeant Elias, Tom Berenger, Sergeant Barnes, and Kevin Dillon as Bunny. Directed by Oliver Stone, who is renowned for producing some great, producing and directing great films. So we've got Wall Street, The Doors, Born, Natural Born Killers, JFK, and Born on the 4th of July, which came after this. But cracking film. It's something that I watched when I was a teenager, and it's rated 15 today. And I, was, I thought it was amazing at the time. I wanted to see if I had the same perception today. The film is about Chris Taylor, 
uh, first going to war to fight the Viet Cong in 1967, Vietnam War. He experiences joining a platoon through the Cambodian jungle, many of them unfortunately dropping like flies. And then, however, in the, in the film, he is fighting two battles, one against the Viet Cong and the other within his own troop. Uh, the film shares Chris's thoughts by letters to his grandma. I didn't really have a loved one at home, which many of the other people in the troops did. So for me, it wowed me because one, it had a great star cast at the time. Oliver Stone was up and coming. He'd done a couple of films before this. And also, I hadn't really seen a, a Vietnam War film at the time. I hadn't seen a pop-up film, which his father was in, which you mentioned last week, Rob. So I'd love to get your thoughts on it, Rob. Yeah, so I was the same. This would have been the first time I saw a film about Vietnam. Um and it really stuck with me. This has been, in terms of like, you know, when I think of war films, this would always be number one for, for that reason. I don't know, there's so much imagery in this, you know, well-known scenes that, yeah, it's hard to kind of get it out of your, get out of your head. Um, and also has an incredible soundtrack. Not only does mm, it have... Soundtrack's amazing. You know, quite well-known hits of the time um tracks of your tears and even my girl and these kind of tracks um which are used in those moments of the film where where they're really getting across the whole camaraderie of the platoons but you also have this orchestral track adagio for strings by samuel barber which is just totally elevates parts of this film. When I was watching it, thinking, what would this film be like without that? I don't think it would have quite the same impact. Interestingly, the editor of the film, Claire Simpson, put in Adagio for Strings as, as a temporary track while she was editing, but it worked so well that she suggested this to Stone that they be left in, which obviously he agreed to because it just made, made these pieces so powerful. So in actual fact, whenever I hear Adagio mm. for Strings... That's, that's all I think about. But going back to what I always say about the need for stories in my mind to be human and intimate and real, the fact that this is all through the eyes of Chris Charlie Sheen and it's based on Oliver Stone's own experiences as a general infantryman in the Vietnam War, it's very much telling everything through his eyes, through Oliver Stone's eyes, the things he saw the typical types of people he was with. So where you have this huge conflict between these two sergeants in Elias and Barnes, who both have very different methods, which effectively begin this infighting within the platoon. You know, these are all characters that he's seen himself. And so that whole autobiographical feel, I think, works really well. Obviously, it's a voiceover that allows you to get into the mind of Chris. And you do feel dug in for the duration. It's very much like you are with them. You're on the mm. ground for the entire time. You know, you don't really ever pull back that often to get the scale of it, apart from very poignant moments. It's very, therefore, very dirty and claustrophobic and just difficult to watch, you know, apart from those scenes where they're kind of letting their hair down in the evening, which is few and far between. Yeah, it's very much quite a difficult, tough watch. Yeah. And it's very much a human study in war, really. Just the fact that it's, you know, I think the points made towards the end of the film is that, you know, that 
this whole thing of like feeling like they weren't fighting the enemy, the enemy is in us. There's this whole idea of no one really knows what the hell's going on. And much of the carnage is brought about by hugely different characters with totally different agendas. In actual fact, the lieutenant who is responsible for all of them is incredibly weak. And Sergeant Barnes, played by Tom Berenger, who's this dominant, fearless, whiskey-swigging guy who will not accept no for an answer from anybody and just lives by his own principles completely wayward principles but principles which he believes is the way to fight a war and yeah the way in which he effectively takes over really almost as the lieutenant himself at one point he pretty much does in the midst of a battle he pretty much just takes over because this lieutenant almost just completely capitulates you know you watch this stuff and you think my god you know, and often this is the theme, isn't it, of many Vietnam wars, this yeah. whole sense of complete confusion. It's a bit worrying, isn't it, when you see American soldiers being painted in not very good light. Yeah. And, and, and you like know, casualties of war, there's jarhead, there's platoon with, you know, rape scenes, there's yeah. fighting between troops, there's bullying, there's drugs, there's alcohol abuse, yeah. there's all sorts. And like I say, you know, a lot of these scenes, difficult scenes, were there because Oliver Stone witnessed them. So, like, it's so, so real. And it's an interesting journey that we follow with Chris because when he arrives, he's really there because, you know, compared to many people there, it appears he's from actually from quite a privileged background and he's the one who decides to volunteer for the war because he wants to get out of these the modest trappings of life and really understand the realities of, of war. That That's kind of why he's there. So he's a complete fledgling. And by the end of it, you know, he he's participating in acts. Mm. one in particular yep. towards the end that really makes you think well has he gone all the way over to you know like Barnes has he become like that figure himself mm. you know and I think that's that's the point it's trying to make that it turns people numb and it turns people mm. into these machines that just have that, that just can't afford empathy to, to get through it but how can you I mean you can't obviously I'm talking about this you can't possibly imagine what it's like but that's the fascination with this whole subject I find with Vietnam yeah. War films yeah yeah I mean um did you have a favorite character for for me it was Elias yeah, so Definitely, because I, I thought William Defoe was great in it. And I mean, without really wanting to say there's a goodie and a baddie, uh, it's definitely Elias. He's got it's, such a sweet smile on his face when, you know, obviously before a nasty scene happens. But but yeah, he, he steals the show for me as well, to be honest. And you, yeah, you do see that bad side of, of Chris, but you just see him growing in confidence the, the longer he's with that platoon. But he's um, he slightly goes the wrong way, but then realises he's he's gone the wrong way and actually stands up for with his morals. And that's what Elias, he was very moralistic and he was a good guy really, wasn't he? Absolutely. And, yeah. And and for me, I this is the first film I think I've seen Willem Dafoe in an actually a good guy character because I've seen him in Spider-Man as Green Goblin, Speed 2, Existence, and he's played all nasty characters, but he has played Jesus in Last Temptation of Christ as well, so he's not all bad, really. On that yeah. point, this was quite interesting. I heard that it was a very deliberate move that Stone wanted 
Willem Dafoe to play the, for want of a better word, good guy, and Tom Berenger to play the bad guy, because up to that point in their careers, they had always played effectively the opposite. So he was deliberately choosing to play them completely Mm. against type, which apparently just completely paid off. Because, yeah, I mean, Tom Berenger, I think he'd done the big chill, and that was the film that convinced Stone that he could do this kind of role. But, yeah, you're right. Willem Dafoe is typically not in that role. Maybe that is one of the Mm. reasons, like you say, that you take such joy in watching it even now because you're seeing Willem Dafoe as that kind of character. Yeah. Also, I think one of the reasons it feels so real is because Stone was so determined to try and get across this whole reality of war. He put them all through this boot camp. But to say it was a boot camp is is not doing it justice because they literally took these guys, all of them, and I think in the space of four weeks put them through this incredibly rigorous ordeal, as some actors describe it, where they were taught as much of the, if you like, knowledge and skills of actual warfare, as well as putting them through absolute hell when it came to kind of living conditions. And the idea was to just basically try and break them. So when they started filming, they genuinely felt completely dug in as I mentioned before because Johnny Depp had never left the US when this when this film was made it's the first time he'd left the country William Defoe talks about arriving in the Philippines a little bit before everybody else and looking out the window and, and seeing tanks coming down the street because the revolution had just started and that, that nearly put pay to the entire production that the revolution in the Philippines where it was filmed started as soon as they planned to start shooting but apparently Stone did a deal with the government and they were able to they were able to to get the film made. And it was interesting to know that all six studios passed on this the first time around. So Stone wrote this almost as soon as he came back from Vietnam to make sure that he captured all these events because he was worried he would just forget about them. But it was only, it was 20 years later before he could actually get it made. Yeah, it's funny. This is just, this film has just, got such a soft spot for me i watch it now and i have just the same affection for it as i had when i first watched it It felt like it hasn't faded too much yeah i mean i I mean obviously i mentioned some of the reasons why i liked it at the beginning but it was the soundtrack that drew me drew me to it as well soundtrack's really good but it's um i don't know i thought some of the acting was a bit mediocre on occasions to be honest, and it's like everybody's going to go, what? But yeah, and I watched it with my husband and he had actually the same opinion as me. So it was, he had seen it before and we both hadn't, we were too young to see it on the big screen. I watched it on like a DVD the first time. And I don't know, I just looked probably a bit deeper at the acting and I I felt it was kind of mediocre. Uh, But I did find there was a lot of empathy on the Vietnamese side as well. And they did come across as much more intelligent than the Americans with their tunnels and their booby traps, etc. Well, by all accounts, Stone found himself in a position once of finding some quite horrific things being done to the Vietnamese mm. when they mm. coming across them and destroying villages. And he was very much against all of that. So I wonder yeah. whether it was really important for him to make that. To show that. To show that. Yeah, and show the crudeness of some of the, the American soldiers as well, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that about the acting. When I first saw it, 
There's always been something about Charlie Sheen's voiceover yeah. I never totally bought into. And I must admit, that is still the same today. And it's interesting. It didn't that... really work, did it? I didn't really match with the rest of the film. I don't know what it. I don't know what it was. It was just didn't the, the voice quality or the sound quality didn't kind of match the rest of the film. I I got to be honest. I, I just put it down to the fact that Charlie Sheen isn't isn't really the best actor, mm-hmm. and so I, I just put it down to the fact that he just didn't really nail it. I mean, I was looking at the the, the actors that were considered for his role. Because Emilio Estevez was was going to do it, his brother. But by the time they got round to filming it, he was booked apparently. So they did go back to Charlie Sheen. But I heard Keanu Reeves was was on the list as well. And bizarrely, when you hear Charlie Sheen's voiceover in this, at times it almost feels a bit airheady. It almost feels a bit that Bill he's head. Yeah, it's just a bit, a bit, well, you are exactly. Excellent. It's it's more. I was thinking more. Yeah, more of that kind of airheady type of acting that you might attribute with with Keanu Reeves. Yeah, that that voiceover never sat well with me mm. because when you watch Apocalypse Now and you watch his father doing the same thing with the voiceover, you don't question it. You don't you don't think, oh, that doesn't sound quite right. And that's not that convincing. Whereas I, I mean, I think that has always been the case for me with Platoon and and the characterizations. They are pretty one dimensional. These characters it, you so i do accept what you're saying but it's the power of nostalgia for me that just mm. makes me like it so much so i'm gonna give this eight and a half uh, maybe i think it, maybe i've just got a soft spot for it eight and a half is a good score i'm gonna give it eight out of ten i do have a soft spot for it as well but yeah on occasions there's some some mediocre acting from mr sheen um, and I'm not sure whether Estevez would have done a better job, to be honest. I, I would have thought he would have been completely the wrong choice to do that. I've never seen Estevez in a in a serious role. He's always done sort of jokey, sort of Disney kind of roles. Sadly, I don't think either Emilio Estevez or Charlie Sheen picked no. up the acting genes from their dad, um, <laughs> despite their best efforts. So, yeah, yeah. I kind of agree with you there. Well, here's hoping they're not listening to us right now. Right now. <laughs> I'm sure they speak very highly of us as well. Of course. <laughs> so an eight and a half and an eight sounds good. So uh, that's for Platoon. Right, okay, right. so it's that time again. Right. It is. Okay, so you're going to give me a genre. Go for it. Fantasy. Fantasy, awesome. I've got eight. Uh, I will go for number two, please. Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth, okay. I've seen that a long time ago, but yeah, that'd be a good one to watch again. So this is um, Guillermo del Toro, and this is set in Falangist, Spain of 1944. The bookish young stepdaughter of a sadistic army officer escapes into an eerie but captivating fancy world. I mean, when you think of directors and auteurs, if you like, uh, Del Toro obviously is one of those. So if you want to watch something completely unique and what he does with fantasy, meshing fantasy with reality, his films are very good for that. Yeah, they are very good. And actually, he does some great cartoon series as well. He does, and he won an Oscar not long ago for Shape of Water, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, so you can rent this film on all major platforms, Amazon, Google, Apple, etc., etc. Sounds good. Looking forward to that. So go on then, give me your choice. Okay, so it's, it's going to be thriller, is, isn't it? It's <laughs> genre. It's Western. Western, right. Let's have a look then. Well, I know there's not many on your list. No, there's not. There's two. <laughs> 
I'm going to have to have a look at some of the westerns and add some, I think. So I've got two for you, though, at the moment. Well, on the basis that you're going to start with, if you've only got two, your, your proper favourite, I'm assuming, I'm going to go for number one. You're going to go for number one, which is The Revenant. And that's got Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hardy, Will Poulter, Domhnall Gleeson, and released in 2015. It's well known for a, a scene where DiCaprio takes on a bear in a fight. And of course, it's, it's the first Oscar, best, best acting Oscar that DiCaprio got. Mm. Uh, so it's streaming on Netflix and you can rent and buy it on all other online channels. Also, I just want to say, just as a reminder to everybody, we are recording all of our podcasts over Zoom. So if for whatever reason you hear a bit of garble or dropout, blame Zoom in these COVID-19 days. <laughs> yeah. So that's us done, isn't it? Do we need to do some shout outs? I think, you, I think um, some shout out for you, actually. He, Mr. Factoid today on both of the films. Really, well, I really had good. To, I had to make up for your Moulin Rouge nerd attack um, last <laughs> week, which totally bowled me, I totally bowled me over when I was listening back. I thinking, I thought I'd better, <laughs> I better pull my socks up a little bit. Uh, should we do a shout out? To a couple of people we know that are avid listeners. I think we should. All two of them, three of them, four of them. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I think we should. <laughs> Ones we know about, Mr. Courtenage. Big up the Courtenages. And the Harlands. And the Harlands. And Jenny Drummond. Jenny Drummond. Super fan that is Jenny Drummond. Yeah, she's always there. And if we're late with putting it out there, she'll say, I wondered where you were. <laughs> exactly. She should be like the production manager, making sure we get this thing out on time. Yeah. And also Karen Wong. I know Karen Wong listens as well. And, and also to my mum that helps to bump the numbers up. And, and the in-laws. So we're not, not too bad. Thanks for supporting us anyway. Absolutely right. Well, look, thanks a lot again for today. Another fascinating chat. And I'm looking forward to The Revenant and... I've forgotten already. Pan's Labyrinth. And Pan's Labyrinth. Enjoy, everybody. Thanks See you very much, Rob. Bye. Bye. Bye.